1: Welcome back to New Books in Religion. Thanks again for joining us. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson. For each program, we're searching for great new books in the study of religion, and we chat with the author of the book. For today's program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Joseph Laycock about his great new book, The Seer of Bayside, Veronica Lucan and the Struggle to Define Catholicism, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2014. In understanding a tradition, what is the relationship between the center and the periphery? And how do the live religious lives of practitioners contest or affirm authority? In The Seer of Bayside, Joseph Laycock explores the implicit power of definitional boundaries through his study of a community that is simultaneously insider and outsider. The book is an introduction to Veronica Lucan, who had apparitions of the Virgin Mary, Jesus, and other Catholic saints, and a history of the movement that developed around her, the Baysiders. Laycock framed this unfolding history within the movement's evolving relationship with church authorities. The narrative presents Lucan's early visions, the community of followers that rose up around her, and the continued conflict they received from the church, their neighbors, and each other. The case is useful for understanding the creation of meaning through the contestation of tradition, and questions of what gets to count as orthodox. In our conversation, we discuss the Second Vatican Council, UFOs, technologies of power, the Pope, imagined communities, ethnography, new religious movements, abnormal Polaroid pictures, conspiracy theories, and the construction of sacred space, among many, many other things. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Joe. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome again to New Books in Religion. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Joseph Laycock about this great new book, The Seer of Bayside, Veronica Lucan, and the Struggle to Define Catholicism. How's it going, Joe?
0: Thanks for joining me. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks.
1: Yeah, you've written a, a really wonderful book. Um, you really pay great attention to your style, and it's very readable, uh, both in your kind of ethnographic explanations and your historical narratives. Um and as always you're, you're you have a very keen and perceptive eye to how various phenomena can can help us think about the study of religion so I, I think lots of people will really benefit from from reading your book and uh, at least listening to it if they're if they're listening now so um, thank you for for writing a great book um, before we get into the contents though um, tradition here is to to get a little bit of information about you so could you tell us how you got interested in the study of religion, perhaps um, people or subjects that really kind of influenced how, how you approach things or the topics that you select to study?
0: Well, it's, it's sort of in my blood, I guess you could say. Uh, my, my mother is a sociologist and a, um, a Catholic and very active in her, her church Um, so I, I grew up in the, in the church and then my father is Doug Laycock, who listeners of this podcast probably know is a, a lawyer specializing in constitutional law. Um, so I have a very early memory of being about the seventh grade and going to, uh, the Supreme court and seeing my father argue the, uh, Lukumi Babaluai case about the, uh, rights of, uh, Santeros in, uh, Hialeah, Florida to, to, practice animal sacrifice um, so I've had a lot of kind of complex ideas about religion in, in my head for a long time. Uh, and of course, when I went to college, I thought I was sort of going my own way and, and doing my own thing. Uh, and I got very interested in, um, in comparative religion. Uh, and it really wasn't until later that I realized kind of how much, uh, my, my parents had kind of shaped the way that I thought about things and the kinds of questions I asked. So um, the, the book is actually dedicated to my parents.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, w- I wasn't aware of those. Uh, could, could you talk a little bit more about your your research in general? This isn't your second book, but you're, you're a pretty prolific writer. Um, could, you, could you tell us a little bit about the types of things you are interested in and some of your previous work?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in contemporary movements, and I'm interested in – Uh, groups that are sort of misunderstood and maligned. And so my my first book was on self-identified vampires. And in a lot of ways, they're about as far as you can get from uh, traditionalist Catholics. Uh, But in other sense, they're they're similar in that they're both uh, very kind of stigmatized, uh, misunderstood uh, groups. So I think that um, part of what we can do as religion scholars is we can render the strange familiar and the familiar strange, right? This is a uh, an axiom that you see a lot in, in religious studies. Um, so I think that part of my job is, uh, is going out and studying these groups and kind of letting the public know, uh, about what they're really like. Um, so that was what I was trying to do here with, with the Baysiders.
1: Yeah. Now, could, could you talk a little bit about how this project, uh, started to emerge? This, this was originally a dissertation. Can you remember back to kind of the early stages of, of, of where you even got this idea and how you started to pursue it?
0: yeah i'm I'm very interested in uh, what's being called reenchantment now. Uh, of course, Max Weber uh, coined this uh, this phrase that uh, the world has become uh, disenchanted and uh, in, in zauberung in, uh, in, in German. Uh, and this uh, this claim was tied very closely to uh, the secularization narrative, right that religion and certainly ideas of the supernatural are not going to survive. Uh, modernity and are sort of fated to, to die out. Uh, and I still think that the secularization narrative, as Max Weber described it, is still widely believed by the general public. I think if you go up to um, um, normal people on the street, they will tell you that you know religion is losing its power, and we have uh, Pew Forum surveys um, saying things to this effect, even though if you watch um, you know Discovery or the History Channel or things like this, it's nothing but uh, Bigfoot and UFOs and conspiracy theories. Uh, so clearly these things have not died out, uh, at, at all. Clearly they're still out there, uh, perhaps more than ever before. So there's something wrong with the way that we are looking at the data, right? I think the secularization narrative, the disenchantment of the world has become kind of a, a mythology unto itself. Um, so I was interested in thinking about ways of looking, um, at these, these sorts of, um, enchanted subcultures or subcultures that have a close relationship with the supernatural. And I'm interested in Catholicism, you know, first of all, because I, I consider myself um, Catholic, um, but, but also because, um, you know, in, in some sense the Catholics have never been disenchanted, right? Or at least some uh, forms of Catholicism. So I knew that I wanted to do something with these issues of, of modern um, ideas about um, the supernatural. Uh, I knew I was interested in, in Catholicism. And, and to be honest, I first found out about Veronica Lucan doing my research on vampires, uh, because Veronica Lucan was a, was a seer. She was getting these messages from heaven. And one of the more obscure messages, she warned her followers that there are uh, literal vampires uh, loose in New York. And of course, she thought of these as people who were possessed in a certain way that they require a uh, human blood. But it was, that was how I sort of first found out about this person. And then as I began to think more about my dissertation, um, I realized that this was something where not a lot of work had been done before, um, where I had access to uh, church archives through the Diocese of Brooklyn, and where the whole thing was just about the right size to where I could really do a good job uh, in, in something the size of a, of a dissertation. Um, so those were kind of the reasons that I that I selected this project uh, initially.
1: Could you talk a little bit about how you transitioned from the dissertation and, and how you began to think of this as a book? What kind of things were you reconsidering or, or, or thinking of adding or how, how did this process go for you?
0: Yeah, I, I think um, – where a lot of my colleagues uh, in graduate school, I think, were having um, trouble was that they wanted their dissertation to be uh, a masterpiece. You know, they really wanted to have this sort of grand theory of, uh, of religion. And my philosophy was, you know, I'm <laughs> deeper in debt every day I'm in, in grad school, right? A dissertation I can go away <laughs> from is a, is a good dissertation. Uh, and so I didn't half-ass it or anything like this. Uh, that's, that's not what I mean to imply Um, But a dissertation is – most dissertations are not something anyone would ever want to read, right? Because most of what you're doing in a dissertation is a sort of recital. You're showing your committee, I understand these theories and I can can apply them. Um, So I had my dissertation defense uh, and Robert Orsi um, was willing to be on my dissertation committee, um, which I'm very grateful that he was willing to do that. He didn't have to. Um, I think it was possible that – uh, he had heard of Veronica Lucan and just wanted to see if I had found anything uh, interesting uh, about her. Um, so he was actually skyped into my dissertation defense and appeared uh, on a screen as a three-foot-high floating head. <laughs> <laughs> like, <"That's your> boss. <laughs> so he was literally between heaven and earth, right? Like his famous uh, uh, books. So it was a little bit daunting, um, but he gave me seven pages of feedback on my dissertation, which uh, you know was was phenomenal. That that really helped. Uh, The other thing that helped was a book by um, William Germano from UChicago Press called uh, From Dissertation to Book. And it's a very slim volume, but it has some really excellent advice, even about things like how to rename your chapters. Uh, And so I sat down and the first thing that I did was I took the dissertation and I crossed out the names of all the theorists. Um, all the theorists that I had included in there to show my committee that I understood them and and could apply them. I took that all out and then tried to make it sort of more of a, more of a narrative. Uh, And then as I was doing that, you know, there were some theoretical questions I wanted to home in on that I actually thought were important and where I was advancing an academic conversation. So in those cases I would actually um, um, talk about these, these theorists, but a lot of it was, was cut out and that made it a much more um, readable, Text. I think the other difference between uh, The Sphere of Bayside and my first book on vampires was that uh, I did a lot of writing in between those books for religion dispatches, uh, and that helped me sort of practice with with popular writing or writing in an engaging style. And Julie Byrne, who was also on my dissertation committee, said, you know, your dissertation, it's really soulless. It doesn't read like your articles for religion dispatches. Uh, So that was another goal was to kind of make it um, still give it some theoretical punch, but make it something that was sort of more of a a, that you would actually want to read. Because I think the story of Veronica Lukin is in itself a really amazing, inherently interesting story uh, that hasn't really properly been told before.
1: Yeah, I I think he's very successful because I could see people that aren't even academics picking up this book and reading it and not being befuddled by the uh, big words. So, yeah, you've done a very good job with that. Um, As far as doing the research, could you talk a little bit about your sources, because um, you already mentioned that you had this archive that you were doing, and a lot of this is history, um, but then you also have this really interesting ethnographic part. Um, So perhaps could you tell us a little bit about that, and then you you also make some remarks about, um, I guess, some missteps or (laughs) things you've learned in doing your ethnographic research. So could you talk a little bit about that experience?
0: Yeah, uh, so I, uh, I took one course with Robert Orsi when I was a master's student at, at Harvard, and you know, it was only the one course, but I really appreciated uh, the sort of lived religion model of, of history that he was describing, which combines ethnography with archival research, because Robert Orsi argues that uh, religion takes place within local worlds, right? So if you want to know what a religious community is about, you have to actually go and watch it. Uh, with your own eyes. Uh, so I was never trained as an anthropologist, per se, in ethnography. Um, but I have some experience with, um, with ethnography, working with my research on vampires, uh, working for the Pluralism Project at, at Harvard Divinity School and so forth. So I, I have some um, experience with this. I did not do any ethnography for the dissertation, uh, simply because uh, it was so difficult to go through an institutional review board. Uh, So the dissertation was based only on archival sources. Um, A a student, it was a classmate of mine at at Harvard. Her name is Jane Yeager, um, had actually, by total coincidence, written uh, her master's thesis on Veronica Lukin. So I was able to get a copy of that, and I discovered that she had gone to uh, the Diocese of Brooklyn, which keeps an archive, and had gone through the materials uh, there. So I sort of followed in in Jane's uh, footsteps Uh, And I went to this, um, basically the basement, the church basements, where they have these archives. And they have five file boxes on Veronica Lucan. Uh, And the stuff in there is absolutely amazing. And I'm so grateful that they were able to to let me look at it. But it includes, uh, you know, letters in Veronica's own hand to church authorities. It includes letters going back and forth between uh, the Bishop of Brooklyn and his various uh, lieutenants saying, you know, what are we going to do about this woman? And she seems like a sweet lady but we have all these problems. Uh, I found letters from every uh, every inhabited continent from, from various Catholics, either um, wanting to know more about Veronica Lucan or in some cases saying um, my, uh, my parishioners are telling me these bizarre conspiracy theories coming out of, of Brooklyn. What is going on over there? Uh, and it wasn't just paper. People had mailed in um, All kinds of uh, blessed objects or things that they thought had uh, supernatural phenomena associated with them. Uh, So rose petals, saints' medals, uh, all kinds of relics, some of which I assume must have been sort of fake relics that are purchased kind of on the streets of Rome and things like this. And, of course, uh, miraculous Polaroids, right? This movement... um, Believe that heaven would communicate with them by causing anomalies in Polaroids. Polaroid cameras had just been invented when this movement started. So I found stacks and stacks of Polaroids with um, um, anything ranging from it's very obvious. Someone just has their thumb over the lens and says, you know, this is a picture of a comet that's going to come blow up the world uh, from one of Veronica Lucan's prophecies. Uh, to really kind of extraordinary stuff where there appear to be beams of light coming down in the photos uh, onto people. Uh, So Joseph Cohen, who's the the archivist there, said, you know, I'm trained to handle paper. And so the Veronica Lucan archives are kind of a nightmare because there's there's all manner of stuff in here, right? If you open up an envelope, you have no idea what's what's going to, to fall out. Uh, so in the book, I, I actually included a photo of some of the sort of objects um, in this collection. So that was the material that went into the dissertation. And then after I graduated from BU and I was sort of an independent agent, uh, then I began my ethnography uh, and I began with negotiating entry. And I my philosophy is to simply approach, um, the, the groups that I want to study and explain exactly who I am and and what I'm trying to do, uh, and, and not, you know, try to kind of infiltrate or anything like that. And and hopefully they're, they're willing to work with me. Um, when Veronica Lucan died, her followers, um, broke into a schism of two, uh, rival groups and it's a fairly bitter schism. Uh, so the situation that they have worked out is that um, for the, the latter half of Veronica Lucan's career, she would um, deliver uh, uh, visions from Flushing Meadows Park, from a, a park bench that marks where the Vatican Pavilion was during the 1964 World's Fair. So this is sort of the sacred ground for the Baysiders, And the two groups have an arrangement with the Flushing Meadows Park Department where every Sunday, one of them can hold a vigil on this, around this park bench the other group has to move to a traffic island nearby. And so if you're ever in Flushing Meadows on a Sunday morning, you will see um, two identical uh, fiberglass statues of Mary and two identical-looking groups of people in berets saying the rosary uh, around them. It's very strange. It's almost like a, you think you're seeing a mirage or something when you when you first see this. Um, but as an ethnographer, this was very difficult because I can only be – one place at a time so whichever group I approach first that's it I've now been marked as a member of that tribe the other group uh, is is not going to to talk to me uh, so the larger group is called st. Michael's world apostolate and they were actually um, very friendly uh, and very willing to kind of work with me and kind of show me what they were uh, about and I think that group is also more interested in becoming mainstream uh, and the other group is is called Our Lady of the Roses and they were uh, more or less hostile. They made it very clear that, you know, that they were kind of mistrustful of me and didn't consider me to to really be Catholic, or really to know anything about Catholicism and so forth. Um, But they did say, you know, that their vigils were open to the public so that I could, you know, I could participate in a vigil, uh, but they would not do interviews or or anything like that. So it's a sticky situation as an ethnographer. If I had to do over again, Mm I think it probably would have been best to have an accomplice, right, who could um, try to negotiate entry with the other group and then we could compare notes uh, uh, later. Um, But I sort of did the best I could. And uh, the the other thing that that, um, I learned from Robert Orsi is just to be very uh, reflexive all the time, right, to think very carefully about what your own biases and prejudices and and reactions are. Um, So I tried to do that uh, as, as best I could. But something like ethnography, uh, it's impossible to do it perfectly, and it's impossible to do it without um, uh, w- without some kind of bias or, or misunderstanding. Um, so it's, it's it's sticky data, it's qualitative data, and I just hope that I uh, didn't do a disservice to these to these groups um, with with my accounts of of uh, what it's like to attend their vigils.
1: Yeah, I think you you did it well in this book, at least, um, and uh, I'm sure you'll continue to do that in your your other work. <laughs> So uh, we haven't really gotten into the details here yet. Um, the book is basically an introduction to Veronica Lucan and the history of the movement that developed around her, uh, referred to as the Baysiders. And you look at this in relation to the movement's revolving relationship with, with various church authorities. And um, one of the ideas that I think is really valuable um, that you kind of extend throughout the book is this idea of the Catholic church as an imagined community. And here you're, I I think if I'm reading correctly, you're talking about issues of authenticity and orthodoxy. And so could you talk a little bit about how you use this idea? I mean, it's, it's Benedict Anderson's work is used in a lot of different ways. So how, how are you trying to employ this, this idea of an imagined community within the book?
0: Right. So this is still building on these these ideas from sort of the lived religion uh, school of American uh, historiography. Um, but it used to be that if you wanted to know the history of, say, American Catholics, you read letters and proclamations from American Catholic bishops for the most part, right? And whatever it said in these sources, that was what American Catholics were about. Um, so the paradigm shift of lived religion was – well, most Catholics aren't bishops, right, and have totally different concerns and totally different uh, conceptions of what it means to be Catholic. So in terms of archival sources, this means we have to look at things like um, popular uh, inspirational magazines that lay Catholics were reading. Uh, We have to look at personal uh, letters and diaries. And it means that to the best that we, we can, we have to go out and do ethnography, right? We have to actually look at Uh, what's important to these communities, right? Um, So Benedict Anderson had this notion of imagined communities, right? He said that um, uh, any community larger than a a village where everyone sees each other face-to-face every day is in a sense imagined. It's not imaginary, it's, it's a real community, but it's imagined in the sense that there is this ongoing conceptual work to, uh, uh, to, to feel that you are connected to someone else in this community. So for Catholics, there's uh, lots and lots of ways to be Catholic all over the world. Probably uh, no one person could ever um, uh, actually conceive all the different ways that there are to be Catholic. I mean every, everything from um, – think about uh, just here in Austin, Texas, if you see kind of uh, Mexican and Latino – uh, folk traditions of Catholicism and you compare that to Catholic movements you might see in in Japan or in you know the the Midwest or Brazil um, so in terms of what it means to be Catholic is actually sort of subjective right Everyone has this kind of idea in their head of what that means uh, but but everyone's idea of Catholicism is not uh, uh, the same um, So Veronica Lucan's movement began after Vatican II, and this was a moment when, Um, ideas about what it means to be Catholic sort of came into uh, conflict, right? So uh, for the first time, a lot of traditionalist Catholics in America realized that they weren't on the same page with church authorities the way that they had kind of always uh, imagined uh, that they were. Uh, And so I see um, Veronica Lucan and her movement – as an attempt by lay Catholics to kind of assert, right, hey, this is what Catholicism is really about, right? And they don't have the authority of churches. They can't issue um, they can't issue encyclicals. They can't institute liturgical reforms and, and so forth. But they do have a kind of power, and, and they were sort of were aware that if we do things like hold these vigils, right, we're asserting our claim of what it means to be Catholic uh, over and against um, their opponents, and their opponents in this case are... Reformists and and particularly um, the architects of, of Vatican II, who they regard as being um, very kind of sinister uh, uh, figures, right? Um, so it's it's really a book about this um, this conversation about what it means to be to be Catholic and kind of the uh, the, the types of power that lay Catholics can exert in negotiating that conversation. Mm.
1: Um, now, perhaps you could give us kind of a, a fuller uh, biography of of Veronica Lucan. Who who was she? How did she begin to have visions, and and why? I guess did they become important? Right. Lots of people have experiences like this. Why why was hers taken so serious?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Right. Why does one person why is one person considered a, a schizophrenic, and another is considered a, a prophet? And of course, in um, Veronica Lucan's case. Uh, depends on who you ask, right? There were plenty of people who said she, she was mentally ill. Um, but, uh, Veronica Lukin was, a, a housewife, a homemaker, um, who lived in, um, near the neighborhood of Bayside Hills, uh, Queens, um, which is in, in Flushing, uh, had, I believe five children, um, and, uh, her was basically a normal, um, homemaker, uh, until, uh, 1968, uh when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. And while she was, uh, of course the Kennedys were um very important to American Catholics, right? Um so the assassination first of, of JFK and then of his brother was a was a huge blow to American Catholics. So while she was praying um first for Robert Kennedy to recover and then for his um, um praying for his his soul in, in purgatory, uh she began to have these mystical experiences. And they started off very mild at first. Her first mystical experience was she could smell uh, roses inexplicably. Uh, And she's kept some writings kind of describing these initial experiences uh, and has talked about describing what was going on to her neighbors and so forth. Uh, But over time, they became um, more intense and also more frightening. So early on, she describes going shopping in Flushing, and seeing a black eagle in the sky uh, screaming, you know, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And she runs into a five and dime and calls her husband, Arthur, at, at work and says, you know, you come pick me up. There's a, you know, there's there's this horrible vision in the sky and, and so forth. Uh, and so I talked to various people, including Veronica's uh, uh, grandson. Uh, and it from the, the picture that I got, it, it seems like her husband really did think she was going crazy, uh, certainly at first and, and possibly for, for longer than that. Um, and so she's having these intense experiences and she's looking for someone that can help her make sense of them. Uh, and as to what's actually causing these experiences, that's sort of beyond my um my scope to, to speculate on. Um, there were some very sort of facile explanations that sort of um, appealed to what William James called medical materialism, right? Trying to reduce all of this to brain chemistry. Um, the laziest interpretation I encountered was a claim that she was taking these diet pills, right? And this was, this was causing her, her visions. Uh, and of course there, she was on diet pills several years before her visions began uh, certainly wasn't on them after they started. So uh, that would be a pretty interesting side effect, right? Drowsiness and, and 30 years of vivid religious ecstasy. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know what caused them. It is true that in um, the, the sort of history of Marian Sears, Sears, uh, people are often under a great deal of physical and, and personal uh, stress when these visions start. And that was certainly true of Veronica Lucan. Um, her husband was... Um, not doing well uh, financially at the time, was struggling to find um, um, work. Uh, she her her uh, was having trouble taking care of her five children who were having their own problems. Um, she had um, various uh, other uh, relatives. So she had about nine people living in this very small uh, apartment. So you know she was sort of living in a state of quiet desperation um, when this when this all began, which is consistent with other. Uh, other Marian Sears that we, that we know about Um, as to, so, so she went out looking for someone to confirm these experiences to tell her what was happening. She was frightened. And the first place she went was to um, St. Robert Bellarmine's church, which was her parish church. And she went to confession and uh, the, the priest there, and I only have her side of the story, but kind of gave her the brush off, right? Didn't tell her she was crazy, but said things like, well, it's wonderful that, Mary has chosen to to speak to you in this way, but you should probably keep this to yourself, right? Don't talk to people about these visions. They might get the wrong idea. It might be uh, embarrassing. So she began looking immediately for someone who would at least believe her, even if not um, make sense of what was happening to her. And there were various people in her neighborhood that would would come and speak to her and kind of encourage her. And some of them even said um, that they could see these visions too, um, her youngest child was named Raymond, and he claimed that he um, could, could see one of her visions, and she actually made a tape of him saying that, that he could see this uh, happening. Um, so she began um, sort of a, a small uh, um, um, a vigil uh, circle at St. Robert Bellarmine's church. Mary appeared to her eventually after these visions had intensified and said, I will appear um, in June – Um, at St. Robert Bellarmine's church, and so according to the story, she's kneeling before the Statue of Mary at her church for something like 12 hours in the heat and the rain, and eventually Mary appears and says that she will be there at this spot um, on every Catholic uh, feast day. So Veronica and a few kind of well-wishers, people that she called uh, companionable spirits, um, would would show up and, and say the rosary. And she was sort of regarded as the neighborhood weirdo from people that I talked to, but it, it was just sort of, um, she, she hadn't sort of um, had a, a shift in, in status to being a famous seer or anything like this. Uh, and then in 1973, uh, a traditional uh, Catholic group from Canada called the Pilgrims of St. Michael um, sort of seeks her out. And uh, they, uh, in their publication, began calling her uh, the seer of the age and, uh, so, so now Veronica's messages are, have a much wider circulation uh, people all over the country and all over Canada and even overseas are reading about these messages that she's getting from, from Mary and Jesus when they, uh, appear to her. And soon the uh, pilgrims of St. Michael are organizing, uh, buses of pilgrims who are coming to this tiny church. Um, so by 1975, there were up to 2000 people coming to see Veronica Lucan, um, go into, uh, ecstasy, right? And this causes a tremendous problem for the neighborhood because um, St. Robert Bellarmine's church is surrounded on all sides by very affluent houses with manicured uh, lawns. Um, There's nowhere for all these people to go, so the neighbors are complaining about traffic and litter, and people are urinating on their lawns and so forth. And this actually got very ugly. It developed into something that that attracted national news. and was known as um, the Battle of Bayside, so that every Catholic feast day... Uh, Veronica would show up and her followers would show up to come hear her. And then the neighbors would heckle and run their lawnmowers and basically do anything they could to disrupt um, the, the, the ceremony and, and and sort of drive them uh, away. Uh, eventually, up to 100 police officers were present um, every time there was a vigil to help keep the peace. Uh, there was a stabbing at one point. There was a... a uh, resident of the neighborhood who was uh, clubbed with a with a baton. Uh, so things got very dramatic, and eventually um, uh, there was an injunction from the Supreme Court of New York, and the group was forced to move to their new site in in Flushing Meadows. Um, but that's but the original question of why Veronica Luke can become a seer instead of um, um, just sort of the neighborhood kook. I think that there are sort of two processes of interpretation going on. I think that she was having these anomalous experiences and trying to figure them out. And then there was a larger, a a social uh, level of interpretation where uh, traditionalist Catholics, people like the Pilgrims of St. Michael, uh, were living in the aftermath of Vatican II, and also uh, the Cold War and other sorts of, um, uh, there were other sorts of events that they were concerned about and wanted an interpretation for. And they sort of figured out that we can solve both our problems together. Right? So, They were able to tell Veronica, you're not crazy. You're a seer. These are really messages from heaven. And once they gave her that authority, Veronica could turn around and say, you're not crazy. Um, The the Catholic Church really has made a mistake. Um, And this is a sign of um, a great chastisement that is coming and so forth. But eventually... Um, The Catholicism of your childhood will will be restored, right? The church will be fixed from this sort of demonic plot. Uh, And so they're able to sort of solve their problems together. And that's how I kind of try to address um, both kind of the psychological and the sociological level of of what was happening with this woman's transformation from an ordinary housewife into uh, the steer of Bayside.
1: Yeah, and you have a lot of interesting thoughts for so for anyone working on ideas about experience. Uh, I think you you discuss this relationship between experience, which is seemingly individual and personal, um, in relation to the ideas about community and interpretation. And um, I think at one point you'll, you 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 almost say something like the, the church really dropped the ball in uh, it. it by not kind of taking that role in helping her interpret these in a uh, a way that perhaps she wouldn't have become.
0: The- yeah, if if you read, for example, I think it's really interesting to compare Veronica to someone like St. Teresa of Avila. If you read The Interior Castle, uh, she's also having visions and things, but she's she's working with church authorities. And so she keeps saying things like, well, this is what my confessor told me, and I don't quite understand it, so maybe I'm speaking nonsense. But And it's very sort of apologetic mm. and very sort of tripping, walking on eggshells to make sure that she's not defying the, the church's uh, position. Um, and Veronica, I think, had tremendous deference to, to her church, um, certainly at first. Uh, and I think could have easily um, um, ended up being that kind of of mystic, a sort of Teresa of Avila kind of uh, uh, mystic. Uh, But at one point she says, I'm glad that I never had a spiritual advisor because if I did, they would have uh, uh, sort of squelched the real meaning of the messages and the true message of heaven uh, wouldn't have been heard. So I do think that um, the church by sort of ducking this and kind of hoping it would go away on its own, um, sort of pushed her into uh, the arms of more extreme groups like the Pilgrims of St. Michael. And, and I noticed reading her visions, all of her visions have been recorded into six books of prophecy, which you can buy uh, online. Um, her earliest visions are um, in many ways much more pleasant um, and much more um, sort of describing um, uh, themes of comfort and so forth. And after she meets the Pilgrims of St. Michael, her visions get much darker and begin to talk about things like the Illuminati and Freemasons and Soviet uh, plots to take over America and this sort of thing. So I I can only conclude that sort of her new friends that she had made as as a seer were kind of tutoring her in these sorts of John uh, Birch-style conspiracy theories. Um, So her story is also kind of an interesting perspective on – the cold war and 30 years of American history through this kind of, um, apocalyptic Catholic perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, now could you, you talk, uh, she has a whole range of very interesting thoughts on the world. Um, so could you, could you walk us through some of the, uh, the things she's talking about, right? And, and how perhaps do we make sense of these more eclectic aspects of her message, um, uh, in relation to this idea that she is responding socially to the reforms of Vatican II.
0: Yeah. Um, so the position that she eventually took, uh, was that, um, Vatican II was basically a communist plot, right? That, um, Pope Paul VI, uh, wasn't really Pope Paul VI, that the real Pope Paul VI was sort of kept drugged, uh, and that the KGB had created fake Paul VI uh, using plastic surgery. And and so it was this KGB stooge who actually signed off on Vatican II, right? That wasn't the real Pope Paul VI. Um, now, Veronica was not the first person to claim this, actually. There's a very interesting history of various other uh, seers and traditionalist Catholics who have made this claim about uh, Pope Paul VI. Veronica wasn't the first. And if you Google... Uh, Pope Paul VI imposter, you will find um, all sorts of photographic evidence and even um, uh, supposedly scans of their voices from before and after the, this, um, this KGB switch uh, takes place. Uh, of course, this evidence is not compelling to someone who's not inclined to believe it. They would say this is just Pope Paul VI aging there is isn't. A, a, this is not a, a different person in this uh, in this photograph um but that was that was uh, one way of explaining the changes of, of Vatican 2 right and of course for the church this was the last straw right so they said um forever after if they said well why will you not uh, take Veronica Lucan seriously why will you not investigate her claims of of her mystical experiences the church would simply answer because she said Pope Paul VI was a KGB agent. That's, that's sort of all that we need to, uh, to hear. Um, so chapter four of the book is where I talk about conspiracy theories. Uh, and I, I uh, adopt a term from Jay-Z Smith, which is homo faber, right? Man, the maker. Jay-Z Smith said, um, homo religiosus is homo faber, right? Religion is about creating a world in which we can meaningfully dwell, and I think for the Bay for Veronica Lucan's followers, uh, Vatican II had kind of disrupted their sense of how the world is supposed to work in a really fundamental uh, way. And that um, through Lucan's prophecies, uh, they could kind of remake the world and take all of these bits that never kind of quite made sense and, and sort of create it all into a grand uh, unified theory. So some of the things that, that Veronica talks about are pretty weird. She talks about um, UFOs quite a lot. And, and even today, uh, if you go online, you will see people saying, well, she's not a real Marian seer because she talks about UFOs. That's all we need to hear. That's too weird for anyone that we would take seriously uh, uh, to, to talk about. Um, but if you actually look at the context of when she was giving these um, – These visions, UFOs were all over the news in in the 1970s. And uh, even there's an article in uh, The New Yorker where uh, a reporter goes and attends one of their vigils and actually sees unidentified lights uh, in in the sky. So this was something people were concerned about. There was no official Catholic position on UFOs, right? If you went to your priest and, and said, I'm worried about UFOs, they would say, that's not my department. Um, but Lucan could make sense of that, right. So Lucan, in her um, in some of her uh, messages from heaven, says, well, these are actually, Um, transport ships from hell, right? And this is how demons are coming to earth and so forth. And they're a false miracle and they're trying to trick scientists and they're thinking there's life on other planets and so forth. Um, So it was a way of kind of um, making sense of the world, right? Uniting kind of traditional Catholic ideas with things that didn't really fit anywhere else, things like, um, like UFOs. Um, So conspiracy theories were one way of sort of making sense of that. Um, another way of kind of constructing a world was through what's called the theology of history. Um, and so bay are very concerned with, um, with dates, with finding connections between dates and prophecies. So they're very interested in um, the apparitions in Fatima, Portugal that happened in 1917. And they'll find um, all sorts of connections between, say, uh, a blackout that happened in New York in 1976 and a vision that happened on the same date in Fatima, Portugal in, in 1917. So this is another way that they sort of um take seemingly random, disconnected things and are able to piece it all together into a worldview that is satisfying uh for them. Um so the UFOs are one of the stranger things I talk about in that chapter. Uh the vampires, which I've mentioned, um uh, are another sort of thing that we would, would uh, fall under that category. Um Lucan had a lot to say about the Son of Sam murders that happened in 1976. So that's sort of a fun um, tangent that I explore. Um, Maury Terry uh, was an investigative reporter who tried to prove that uh, David Berkowitz, the Son of Sam killer, was part of this um, nationwide uh, uh, satanic uh, cult that also included Charles Manson. And in his book, uh, he describes this incident where, Uh, They were receiving phone calls with anonymous tips about who the identity of these cultists are who have connections to David Berkowitz, uh, and that turned out to be a bad lead, and and then it turned out that these anonymous calls were coming from Veronica Lucan. Uh, and so it, it turns out that, um, one of Veronica Lukin's bodyguards was actually a detective for the New York Police Department who really promoted this theory that David Berkowitz had not acted alone, but was part of a satanic cult. So I think that a lot of the, the satanic panic that, it, that took full form in the 1980s. Um, in a, in a, a real way, had a, a sort of big boost from um, from Veronica Lukens' uh, followers. Um, and a thing that I didn't get to mention in the book because I found out about it too late was the uh, 2009 documentary Cropsy, which you can see on uh, on Netflix. And that's looking at a, a series of murders of, of children that took place in Staten Island that were attributed to um, uh, a figure named Andre Rand. And the parents of one of the victims. Uh, began receiving these anonymous letters, right, describing how, you know, the killer is part of the satanic cult and so forth. And it turns out that these letters were also coming from Veronica Lucan. So um, she she felt very personally involved if there were uh, murders or things like that going on in, in New York. Um, and in the documentary, it shows them actually out at Flushing Meadows Park speaking to to baysiders about this. So that was kind of a fun uh, uh, discovery for me. Um, but when I actually did my ethnography... Uh, uh, You know, most Bay Siders were not interested in UFOs or um, even claims that uh, Pope Paul VI was a uh, uh, was a KGB agent or any of this sort of wilder stuff that's in the prophecies. And some of them actually seemed a little bit embarrassed about that. Right. And this this shows why ethnography is so important. Right. You can't really understand a religion. Uh, just by picking it up and reading the text, right? So they have a sacred text with some seemingly strange and disturbing passages, but that doesn't give you actually much insight into um, what's really important to this group. So despite all of the um, kind of unusual and fantastic material I found in these messages, the sense I got was most people who were coming to these vigils in Flushing Meadows Park were doing it because um, there was sort of an aura of sanctity, you know, saying the rosary in the park in the quiet of the evening, uh, and that was the real appeal—not these kinds of fantastic ideas about uh, conspiracy theories or, or sort of paranormal uh, discourses. But it's a fun aspect of the of the Bayside prophecies that I that I talk about in the fourth chapter of the book.
1: Yeah. Now. Um This move to Flushing Meadows becomes uh, very significant for the movement. Can you talk about how both kind of organizationally and uh, as far as some of the key ideas, they really get
0: solidified
1: here at this moment? And uh, I guess what are the effects of this move to Flushing Meadows?
0: Right. So one of the, the sort of themes that I explore in the, the film is sacred space, right? And how how is sacred space used um, really as what I call a technology of power, right, to kind of assert your view of the world over and against um, those of your uh, opponents? Um, so at first, uh, and, and all Marian apparitions, almost all of them, have a sacred space that they're connected to, and people who are trying to... Um, sort of throw a monkey wrench into these movements that form around Marian Sears, usually try to stop them from going to a sacred space. This happened at Lourdes and, and uh, Medjugorje and all sorts of these other sort of famous Marian apparition uh, sites. Uh, so initially, Veronica Lucan said, you know, Mary called me to come to St. Robert Bellarmine's church in Bayside Hills and that one day this will become this great basilica and it will be like the Lords of America. That's what they they called it. Um, but the neighborhood was, was causing so many problems that there were efforts to try and get her to move. Uh, and at first she resisted this. So a lot of the um, local police seemed to have been very sympathetic to Veronica because a lot of the police were working class Catholics and were more sympathetic to her than to these kind of wealthier uh, homeowners and said, you know, can we just move you to a park and then you won't be bothering anybody and you can do whatever you want. And she said, no, 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 this is the site that Mary wants me to, to be at. Uh, and then finally, when she was summoned to court, uh, she had a vision where um, Mary appeared to her and said, you've passed the test, right? You can you can move to a new site now, right? And, of course, this, this language of passing the test is uh, common in movements that have prophecies when those prophecies become uh, untenable or go uh, unfulfilled. So they choose um, – Flushing Meadows because of this connection to the Vatican Pavilion during the the World's Fair. So they feel like they have a a connection to the Vatican, right, sort of the center of of Catholic uh, uh, life. So this becomes their new uh, site. Uh, And the movement is really able to grow there, right? They don't have to fight just to to hold vigils anymore. Um, So that was sort of their heyday was during the 1980s. Uh, in Flushing Meadows, when they would have, uh, in some cases, you know, ten thousand people or, or more would come out to to see uh, uh, Veronica Lucan. It got so big, in fact, that they had to sort of um, rig up a system of lights because the people in the back of the crowd couldn't see Veronica at all. Uh, and so they had, I think, a a red light would signal that she was talking to Jesus now, and a blue light would signal she was talking to to Mary. So it was it was really huge for for a long time. Uh, Veronica Lucan died in 1995. Uh, And the crowds um, took a big hit uh, because a lot of people had come really solely to see her. Um, Her charisma was really holding the the movement up in a lot of ways. Um, After she died, uh, as happens with a lot of um, new religious movements, um, there was a battle over succession. Uh, And so in 1997, uh, it split into two factions. On one side was Veronica Lucan's widower, Arthur Lucan. And some of his supporters. And on the other side was a man named Michael Mangan, um, who uh, uh, began working um, for Veronica Lucan's organization uh, as a teenager. And so really knew the whole organization um, inside and out and had been handling a lot of the, the money. So these two groups get into a fight and sue each other. Um, Arthur Lucan wins um, the all the properties Uh, And uh, they had um, a workshop and things like that for printing out uh, materials. Wins the name, Our Lady of the the Roses. Um, But uh, Michael Mangan doesn't admit defeat, forms his own group. And his group actually thrives because he has this kind of – Of, of being more hands-on um, so his organization actually does better in terms of money and membership and eventually he's able to buy equipments um, that, that the other group had had won uh, but anyways they're, they're now fighting over the sacred spot right who has uh, who has access to it and so it's very interesting because it, in a lot of ways the fight to control, this bench in Flushing Meadows Park, which if you ever saw it and there wasn't a vigil going on there, it looks like you you wouldn't even notice it. It looks like this totally um, simple circular little little bench. Um, but the, the the fight to control that sacred space in many ways resembles the fight to control um, this church in in, in Bayside Hills. Um, so so you know there and there were all sorts of so it, when they first uh, had their Uh, Vigil, both groups showed up and were actually kind of struggling for control and police and the Parks Department had to kind of break them up uh, and um um arthur lucan's group even accused uh, mangan's group of bribing the parks department to get sort of a, a favorable uh deal and so now you have this kind of detente where they're not openly hostile to each other and they're able to kind of share the the space um there were other people around the country in florida and michigan and so forth who identified as bay siders who followed veronica and some of them kind of wanted to um make a bid for succession but if they didn't have physical access to this space they basically had no charisma right so it's also an interesting case study in kind of the um what Weber called "ompt charisma right when the the charisma of the individual um is, is gone where does it go to and so a lot of it went into this uh this bench, right? Whoever controls the bench kind of controls uh the the Sider movements. Uh and so there's there's still um fairly sizable vigils that that still take place there. So I went uh and and visited um uh a vigil to commemorate the anniversary of Lucan's first uh first visions, and there were there were several hundred people there, some from as far away as um, Goa, India, where there's a big Catholic community, or uh, or, or Malaysia, uh, so it's still a very important uh, spot for this movement, at least for the time being.
1: Now, um, th- this idea that this is an international movement is is really kind of interesting. Um, could and there was a lot of uh, consequences that arose that were actually similar to this earlier debate over boundaries between the church authorities and Veronica herself. So could you talk a little bit about kind of the identity of the Bay Siders and and how kind of it being an international movement uh, contested these ideas?
0: Right. And this is where I I am kind of trying to advance the conversation about lived religion, right? Because, um, you know, Robert Orsi said, we're studying local worlds. And I think that he is right. But what is a local world in the age of the internet, Right, um, so the kind of classic lived religion case study would usually be, you know, sort of in an urban religious group. So some classic studies are um, things like Mama Lola, looking at um, um, Haitian immigrants in New York, um, or um, Robert Orsi's work on um, um, people praying to Saint Jude in, in Chicago, and, and things like this. Uh, and so a previous literature on Veronica had just sort of assumed, right, it's just this quirky little group that's unique to Brooklyn, right, or unique to, to Queens. Right? And when I did my research, I thought, well, that's not really true, right? Veronica only became significant uh, because people from Canada took notice of her, right? And we don't know exactly why these people of Canada took notice of her, but there is." One story that they were sort of looking for a seer, they wanted a seer, and they approached a woman in Italy who had had visions, who said, uh, I won't be your seer, but seek out this Veronica Lucan I've heard of in in Bayside. Uh, And some of the people giving her uh, money to begin starting this organization in the 70s were from Guam and places like this. So it's always been a a global phenomenon from just right from, from go. Uh, and when I was um, in the archives, I found um, you know baysiders all over the world—in South America, in Africa, uh, in Korea, and in, in Japan, all over Europe. Um, so that kind of forced the church to take this seriously in a way that they probably wouldn't have uh, if it really had just been kind of this quirky group in in uh, Queens. The other thing that I noticed was that the churches. Um, method of dealing with visions uh, has traditionally been a very local one. Traditionally, it's been up to the Bishop to decide whether or not um, claims of private revelation uh, should be investigated. And then if they are investigated, uh, whether or not they should be uh, taken seriously by the, the church. Officially um, the church can declare these things um, worthy of belief, right? So um, the the visions in Fatima, Portugal are declared worthy of belief, which means if you're, Not all Catholics have to believe in them, but if you do believe in them, that's considered something that will be healthy for your faith and not kind of um, leading you uh, astray. So this worked very well politically for the church, right? So in Portugal, um, those those apparitions were approved almost immediately, and it helped to rally the populace against – uh, an anti-clerical regime in Portugal. But in America, they have a very different set of problems, right? Because in America, Catholics have been the outsiders, the sort of superstitious immigrants, and they're trying not to play into that stereotype, uh, which I think is why there was never an approved apparition in America until very recently, I think, until I think 2010. Um, so they, the, the church kind of imagines everything as this grid of dioceses. Um, but the bay didn't see the church that way at all. And so they would do things like fly to Rome and kind of um, almost sort of photobomb Pope Paul II, right, and present him with, um, with copies of Lucan's messages and so forth. And, of course, uh, Pope Paul II was a nice guy and considered a Marian pope and would tell them, you know – I've heard about Veronica Lucan and, you know, may our heavenly father bless you and so forth. Uh, and this was taken by Baysiders as confirmation, right? That we now have, um, um, you know, the authority of the Pope behind our, our movement. Um, so they were sort of able to outflank this very old system of, of authority um, by um, using jet planes and the internets, right? And if they couldn't get their local bishop to approve Veronica Lucan, they could find a bishop in Mexico or India or some other place who uh, who would endorse her her messages. So this became a a big headache for um uh, for the church, uh, and I still don't think they've quite figured out how to to deal with this. So there are similar cases going on right now in in Korea and really all over the world of other women uh, who who claim to have uh, private revelation and uh, are really don't care what their local bishop has to say. They want to take it all the way to the top. And I don't think the church has quite figured out yet uh, what they intend to do about this.
1: Hmm. Well, it sounds like there's a lot more work for you to do then. Um, are there any – I mean, there's a lot in this book with that we just didn't even get to touch on. So um, is there anything that you'd like to say that you felt like we didn't have time to discuss yet?
0: Um. I'm, I'm interested in um, the, um, what's a, a, a Fink and Stark in their book, um, the, Churching of, uh, the Churching of America, um, called the sect-church process, right? And this is a, a sociological model of how new religious movements form and initially have some very radical um, ideas and practices and then gradually become mainstream, right, and become accepted and become a church, and then you have people within this tradition who say, we've, we've lost kind of what we're really supposed to be about. And then they form these sectarian movements, right? Trying to take it back to the original uh, vision of the, the founder. Uh, and so the Bay are a very interesting case study in the, the sect church process, right? Because they certainly start out as this very um, marginalized, embattled um, group that's regarded as very deviant. And then, uh, Michael Mangan, as as uh, the leader of the larger of the two groups, really does a lot to sort of make them seem more mainstream, um, seem um, uh, less hostile to um, uh, to church authority and so forth. Uh, but as he's doing that, he is uh, uh, thwarted or he's hindered by other groups uh, around the country who identify as Bay and are doing these very extreme things, right? Um, So there was a group in um, that were just called the Rosary Ladies in, uh, I believe, Wisconsin, um, who were uh, saying the Rosary so loudly that they were disrupting their church services. And they said, we're doing this to honor the Bayside prophecies. And uh, Michael Mangan actually wrote them and said, will you please... Stop doing this. It's wonderful that you have so much faith, but but please stop. And, of course, they said, we're never going to stop. And the irony is that the things that, that Mangan was telling these women were exactly the same thing that Veronica Lucan's priest had told her, right, when she was having these extreme experiences, right? It's, it's wonderful, but you're creating a stir. You're creating embarrassment. Uh, please, please tone it down. So that was another really enjoyable thing to notice looking at the broader history of this group. Um is how you have this uh this manifestation of the church sect process, uh, and you have groups that are um uh sort of strung together, right? The, the these rosary ladies want to be part of the Baysider National Shrine, um, but have these quirks about them, and then the Baysiders want to be reconciled with the church, but they have these these quirks about it. Um so it was a very interesting study in uh, and how uh, uh, religious movements kind of evolve over time. And it was fun to have the data to be able to kind of of look at that.
1: Yeah. Great. Well, we've, we've taken a lot of your time, Joe. Uh, But before you head off, we were hoping you could tell us a little bit about things you're working on now, things you have coming out soon. What kind of stuff are you up to?
0: Yeah, so I have a book coming out in February that's called uh, Dangerous Games, What the Moral Panic Over Role-Playing Games uh, says about religion, play, and imagined worlds. Uh, And and this doesn't seem like a direct um, uh, follow-up to Veronica Lucan. In some ways, it's not. Um, But the book is about um, the fear that religious groups had in the 1980s of games like Dungeons & Dragons. And why these games were regarded as a kind of a cult religion that was converting children uh, as opposed to simply uh, a game or a distasteful form of pop culture or or whatever. Why were they framed as a a religious uh, uh, phenomenon? And I think that um, this is a book that I've wanted to work on for a long time. And I think looking at... uh, um, kind of conservative movements like the Bay Siders and how they sort of identify uh, threats and kind of how they make uh, um, a, a, a world for themselves in, in which things make sense uh, helped me to think about this fear but this is a book I've wanted to write for, for a long time and I'm, I'm really excited that that's, uh, that's going to come out next month from uh, the University of California Press
1: yeah congratulations Joe, sounds, sounds great perhaps
0: we'll have to talk to you again <laughs> I'd love that alright well thanks for your time, it was great talking to you Okay, thank
1: you very much. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Joseph Laycock about his great new book, The Seer of Bayside, Veronica Lucan and the Struggle to Define Catholicism, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2014.